Good evening, Metsville, and happy and happy opening day to baseball fans everywhere, minor league baseball, major league baseball. Uh, hello, my name is Michael, and I'll be hosting this evening's edition of uh, Metsian Podcast, and I want to jump right in. First, let me bring in my co-partner, uh, Rich Sparago. Hello, Rich. Hey, Mike, how are you? It, it's a good day. Mets lost. That's not usually a sign of a good day, but um had a chance to go today, so enjoy the... Uh, the environment on an opening day at home, which is always wonderful, and nothing like baseball, right? There you go. I want to bring in our guest. I want to do this quickly because I want to jump right into what we were talking about on the pre-show. Our guest today, you know, if there was a Mount Rushmore of bloggers, this man definitely would qualify as being one of the faces upon it. He's a pioneer of online blogging, Mets fandom. What more can I say? He's a, a forefather uh, of this whole operation. Stephen King, many people know him as uh, Cranepool Society. Stephen, welcome to the show, and please take some time to tell us what you're doing and where you're doing it. Oh, thank you, thank you, Mike. It's good, uh, Rich. It's good to hear from you too. I haven't heard you know from you guys in a while. Uh, I'm really not doing much. I don't, uh, you know, the the blog has been uh, discontinued, and the podcasting I've put to the side for a while. I go on Twitter a lot, though, because some of these people that belong to Mets Twitter who claim to be Mets fans, they they drive me up a wall. And every time I say I'm not going to respond to some of these nitwits, I still do anyway. So, <laughs> But I'm usually there. I'm, I have a pretty good uh, standing on social media between Facebook and uh, Twitter. So if anybody's looking for me, you can find me at Cranepool. Now, both of you gentlemen were at the game today. I was home watching. Uh, I, like I said, I want to jump into this conversation we had prior to the show about Eddie Cranepool. Uh, he was around, and Stephen, take it away. Just the general impressions of seeing him, uh, health-wise, uh, you know, organizationally and traditionally-wise. Take it away, Ed Cranepool. Well, I've been fortunate enough to meet Ed and to talk to Ed a lot because the the the, the uh, blog that I did do was called the Eddie Cranepool Society because. Eddie Cranepool is my favorite Met of all time. Uh, I've been a Met fan for 54 years, so I was there from just about the beginning, and I got to know Ed pretty good. And he's he's a really he's a really nice guy, and he's a uh, he's you know he's his heart is blue and go, is blue and orange. He's he's true to the Mets, and for a little while there there was a there was a uh, chill in the relationship between him and the Wilpons. And it seems that you know he's had some health problems. He needs to get a kidney. He needs a kidney transplant. And it seems that they've um, kind of taken him back into the fold and uh, kind of buried the hatchet. And he's been he's been doing a lot of things lately for them, especially now with the 50th anniversary of the '69 Mets, the World Series team. He's going to be around much more. And he just he loves being around the ballpark. He uh, he he loves doing things for the Mets, and he was out there today. Today would have been Gil Hodges' 95th birthday, and Mrs. Hodges, Joan Hodges, who's still with us, thank God, she was there today, and Gil Jr., who I've also, I've met him a couple of times, and he's he's a really great guy. And it was really nice to see Gil Jr. throw out the first pitch to Eddie Cranepool, and Eddie's had to be like 77, 78, and he still scooped one right out of the dirt, right in his glove, so he was... Uh, he was in fine form today, and it was uh, it was a good way to start off uh, the opening day. Rich, your impressions of opening day, and let's expand upon this conversation of Gil Hodges. As Stephen says, today would have been his 95th birthday. He passed away on April 2nd, two days ago. 
Uh, so, Rich, your impressions of opening day and seeing uh, Gil Hodges Jr. throw out the first pitch. Joan Hodges was in attendance, as Stephen says. The last time I saw her was at uh, MCU Park in Coney Island at a Cyclones game. I think uh, yeah. that might have been when they retired his number over there. Right. So, she still uh, lives she in Brooklyn, well by the way. Uh, she yeah. still lives. She, she looks, still lives in Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, yeah, she does. God bless her heart. So, yeah. Rich, take it away. So, you know, the optimist in me, Mike, says this is another plank in the Mets um, making an attempt to embrace their history a bit more and finally do the things that the fans have been asking. You know, we, we've heard about the Seaver statue coming up. We. Uh, it seems like this organization is starting to embrace its history. You know, the, the crane pool, like, like Steve said, there was definitely um, a cold war going on between the, the organization, Eddie Crane Pool, but seeing him back, uh, having the Hodges and having Gil Jr. and Mrs. Hodges there today was just phenomenal. I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the Mets don't win the 69 World Series without Gil Hodges. I, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And, um, and having his son and his and his wife, uh, you know, like God love her, right? H- having them in attendance along with Crane Pool, I'm going to be the Pollyanna here and say they're starting to get it. They're starting to do the right thing. They have a lot of work to do, but it was another step in that direction, and it's nice to see. I, I felt good. I mean, even though, like I said, when we were talking before, even though they lost the game, I, I came home with a positive feeling, a lot of positive feelings today, including and especially the embracing of the history. With respect to Eddie Crampool, I'll refer back to that famous New Yorker article, uh, and pretty much that's when, that's uh, where we learned that Ed Crampool did, in fact, make a, a bid to purchase the team back in 1979-1980. But uh, Joan Payson's estate, her daughter, uh, you know, they elected to – hand the team over to the Wilpons and Salt Cats and accept their bid instead. Uh, as you say, Rich, there was a Cold War. And and uh, not too recently, if you remember when the Mets were undergoing that whole Madoff mess and, and selling shares in the team to, uh, you know, generate some money to pay back loans and whatnot, uh, Jeff and Ed Crample had run into each other at a, a luncheon or a function, and Eddie said to him, uh, I hear you're selling shares in the team. And they exchanged, you know, uh, they went through the conversation at some point. And put this in quotes, if I remember correctly. He's like, I don't want shares in the team. I want to buy the whole damn thing. Uh, again, put that in quotes. <laughs> I wrote about that, I think, about a year ago. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a little bit of an insight to the Cold War that indeed uh, went on. Uh, with respect to Gil Hodges, let's have this conversation real quick. Uh, by the way, we're still waiting on Sam Maxwell. Hopefully he will be joining us soon. But uh, Gil Hodges, next year, the Hall of Fame and what they now call the Golden Era Committee will reconvene, and Gil Hodges' name is once again being put up for debate. I want to read this before I pass it to you guys. Uh, The Baseball Hall of Fame uh, Rules for Election, Article 5 reads, Voting shall be based upon players' record, playing ability, integrity, sportsmanship, character, and contributions to the teams or team on which the player played. Uh, Let me go through a couple of stats, uh, and I'm not breaking new ground here, obviously. Everyone's very well familiar with these. Uh, There are only 25 first basemen in Cooperstown, and Hodges ranks 11th among them with 370 home runs. 
for 12 seasons spanning 48 through 59. Hodges led all first basemen in home runs, RBI, extra base hits, and on, uh, excuse me, OPS. And for the decade of the 50s, he ranked second overall in the National League in home runs and RBI. From 49 through 59, he slashed 280, 367, and slugged 507 while averaging 30 home runs and 101 RBIs per season. He exceeded 20 home runs in 11 consecutive seasons, hit at least 30 home runs six times, and hit 40 or more home runs twice. He exceeded 100 RBIs in seven straight seasons. Upon his retirement, Gil Hodges ranked, and here's, here's what I find the ponderous part uh, of this whole omission from him, of, uh, you know, from the Hall of Fame. Gil Hodges ranked 11th on the all-time home run list at the, at, at the time of his retirement and third amongst right-handed batters. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Of course, he helped the Dodgers win two championships, one in Brooklyn, one in L.A., and he famously went on to manage the Mets to the 1969 championship. So, Stephen, all that being said, I, I'm sure I'm sure you have a little bit more insight into some of the writers' thinking over the years as to why he's not in the Hall of Fame today. Well, it, it, to me, it's, it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that he's not in the Hall of Fame. But one of the things I've heard was that they feel that some of these writers felt there were too many Brooklyn Dodgers in the Hall of Fame. And they figured they had to stop somewhere. And for some reason, they decided that they wanted to stop with Gill. Now, the thing is, it, you, he took a team that was the worst team maybe in the history of baseball, the Mets, from 62 on. They were the laughing stock of the league. And he comes in, and the first thing he does is he he changes the whole culture of this organization to where it's no more, you know, he... Had, and if you read if you read the book after the miracle, the Art Shamsky and Eric Sherman book, it's fantastic. And all you, you, you all these guys talking about Gil Hodges and what he's done to them, especially guys like at Cranepool, Ron Svoboda, uh, Cleon Jones. These, these were guys who came in like when the Mets were really awful. Under you know when Casey Stengel was there just to sell tickets. And when he came in and he told these guys, listen, the, the days of losing are done here. If you're going to come here and think you you know you want to lose or you're not going to be committed to winning, you're going to I'm going to get rid of you and I'll find guys who will. And the respect that they had for Hodges, it was like they never they didn't agree with everything that he did, but they were afraid to question him. He was he was the boss. He was the guy in charge. But you, even just before that, if you look at his career as a as a Dodger, I mean, everybody on that team, he was the captain. He was the leader of that team. Even like when they talk about like with Jackie Robinson, how he embraced Jackie Robinson from the first time he met him, from day one in 47. And, you know, he, 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 he had his back the whole time. And this was something that was in the, in the book, After the Miracle, where... Um, Art Shamsky writes about this, where he spoke to different Dodgers, and they said, no, Gil was like, you know, if anybody was going to come after Jackie Robinson, they'd had to go through him. That's the kind of man he was. He was a very religious man. I said, you know, I don't know how many, he was a, he was a, he's a devout uh, Roman Catholic, and he was very religious. So, I mean, his wife is as well. And this was part of his way of, of doing things. It was, you know, he made sure that he took care of people. And, it's just it, when you look at the Hall of Fame, 
I mean, I don't want to disparage Harold Baines, but if Harold Baines can make the Hall of Fame, how do you leave out a guy like Gil Hodges? Well, you know, not a lot to add to everything you, you guys have said, other than he also is noted as a great fielder, and he had three gold gloves in his career to go along with those 370 home runs, you know, and his other stats, you know, 273 lifetime hitter, um, on base percentage was also very, very respectable at 359 for his career. So, you know, you wonder how a guy like that doesn't get in. The 370 home runs combined with, you know, the average is a little bit lower than a lot of guys would have in the Hall of Fame, but 370 home runs in that era was quite impressive. And, you know, the three gold gloves and, and all of that. So it, it is a bit ponderous why a guy like that doesn't get in the Hall of Fame. It, it really is. And, um, and you know, maybe what Steve said earlier is right. You know, maybe there was a New York bias there, or, you know, an anti-New York bias, anti-Brooklyn Dodger bias perhaps. Maybe that would explain it. But it's hard to um, to look here at these statistics like I'm looking at as we speak and, and not see this man especially time-adjusted as a Hall of Famer. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss for words on, on it myself. And about those gold gloves, when he when he won those gold gloves, the award itself is brand new. So, you know, he was the recipient of a new award. Otherwise, he, you know, more than most likely would have won a bunch more. Ponder well, he's not in the Hall of Fame that we're having this conversation. Go ahead. Well, you know, the the other thing is, too, is some of these, the writers and that, that do the voting, they're so beholden to the numbers. They, you know, anybody can go on baseball reference and look up a name and just look at numbers. But to me, when you're talking about Hall of Fame, it, it's more than just the numbers, too, with, with, with some players. Players who've made an impact on the game. Who's made a bigger impact than, than Gil Hodges? I've always said, for, 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 I'll say from now till forever, the day he passed away was was the worst thing that ever happened to the Mets, and that I think I would even include that with the Tom Seaver trade in '77. I mean, when he passed away, that we went downhill right after that. I mean, when Yogi became the manager, when it should have been Whitey Herzog that got the job, and when Whitey didn't get it, he took off and went to St. Louis to join Bing Devine, who was with the Mets, who went back to St. Louis. But think about if Gil like. If he was with the Mets for another twenty years from then, I mean, we definitely would have had more than one World Series. He and and I could guarantee you, Tom Seaver wasn't getting traded to the Cincinnati Reds if Gil was still alive and still the manager and running things. You know what? That was an unheralded heyday. Not too many people are aware of it, but as you say, Bing Devine was on board, Whitey Herzog was on board. This is when Gil and Casey were still alive and Joan was still alive. And then all of a sudden, overnight, uh, all of that was just uh, taken away. Uh, very interesting how how history could have you know played out very differently. Go ahead, Rich. Were you about to jump in? No, not me. All right. Uh, you know, he, he's according to the Hall of Fame's criteria, he fits every single one. You know, and I have a personal criteria that, you know, you, sh- you should have been the dominant player for at least 10 years of your career. And, and Gil Hodges was, in fact, that. Uh, hopefully next year at this time we're, we're having a different conversation. And, and as we said, or I, you know, the last time I saw Joan, she looked very well. And as Stephen says, she still lives here in Brooklyn. Uh, it, it would be great 
uh, if they if they, they can see it in their hearts to you know get Gil Hodges in the hole while they're still uh, alive and well to to enjoy uh, to enjoy that and for Mets fans to get up there as well and, and enjoy that. So let, let's move on. And I asked you guys before the show, you know, where exactly we wanted to go first. And I figure we tackled the 800-pound gorilla in the locker room first. This way we have a better chance of ending the podcast on a, on a, on a slightly better note. But uh, that 800-pound gorilla is Ron Darling in his book. What a maelstrom this guy's created. He's white hot like a supernova right now. Uh, by now we all know... Some of some of now you know most of the particulars in the book. I'll only open by saying this before we really get into the meat and potatoes of this. Uh, just when Bertie Van Wagenen was beginning to create a a, a new a new narrative and you know create a new condition around Flushing and City Field and changing the conversation and just generally spending the off-season creating a, a much more positive atmosphere on the field uh, and in the headlines. Here comes, you know, an alumnus from days gone by, and he writes this book and, and puts the Mets right back on the back page uh, for reasons that are just – Pure folly. That's all I can call this. Pure folly. I'm a little frustrated. So, Stephen, Ron Darling's book, and, and you know, I, we, we, we've all discussed this on Twitter already. It's a lot of things that we don't like about it. Books are nothing new. You know, we can go back to uh, Ball 4, you know, back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, the Bronx Zoo. So many books, so many controversies, but this one really seems to hit home. Well, why? Because the Mets involves us and the team we love to uh, root and support. So, Rich, uh, excuse me, uh, Stephen, take it away. Well, well, you know, what I don't understand is he write, he, Darling wrote this book, and you, you, you're going after people who really can't defend themselves. I mean, Lenny, Lenny Dykstra has come out, like, with guns blazing, and... I don't know if Lenny said the things that Darling said that he did, and I, I know now they've had I've, some of these sports talk stations have had Oil Cam Boyd on, and he says he doesn't remember hearing anything. And then I'm and I'm thinking, well, on that team was Dwight Gooden, Kevin Mitchell, uh, Daryl Strawberry, Rafael Santana. I mean, if any of those guys heard him saying something like that, especially Kevin Mitchell, who was a gang member. <laughs> I'm sure they would have said something to Lenny. And and the thing is, you know, Darling even says in the book that, you know, he heard these, heard him say these things and he didn't do anything. And then when Lenny, and when Lenny hit that home run, which was really the turning point of the World Series for the Mets, he was the first guy that jumped off the bench to congratulate him. So then I say to myself, why, why would you even bring this up? This has never been brought up before. This is 30, over 30 years ago that this happened. And I'm like, well, at least Lenny is alive, and he can go after him, which he's doing. The one that got me the worst was the Bob Murphy thing about Bob Murphy being intoxicated in the clubhouse. I don't understand why you have to write something like that. Why would you have to write – Bob Murphy is beloved by 
my generation of Met fans who listened to him, you know, growing up. And I just don't understand why you would have to put a story like that in a book. Are you that desperate, you know, selling a book? And what I would like to know is I would like to know the feelings of Gary Cohn and how he rose. Because, I mean, Gary Cohn learned at the knee of Bob Murphy. He's the one that brought him along when, when Gary Cohn joined the, the uh, broadcasting team. He was teamed with Bob Murphy on the radio. And Howie Rose has been there since, uh, you know, time immemorial. So, and, and he grew up as a Met fan like we have. I would love to know. I, I guess they, they have to mute how they feel because being that Darling is with them. And Darling just gives off an air like he's better than everybody else. And, you know, and it's funny because, he, you know, he's, he was, you know the, the, that whole broadcasting team is fantastic with, with Keith Hernandez, Gary Cohn, and himself. But he has really, really ticked off the Met fan with, with what he's written in this book. I mean, even the stuff about Kevin Elster. If you, were, if you were a Met fan in those days, you knew all about this with Kevin Elster. Kevin Elster was the biggest ladies' man on that team. This is no, this is, you know, you're not telling the tale out of school. I mean, we all know this, but I don't understand why you're doing this to your teammates. And like I said on Twitter, I put out a tweet saying that the next 86 reunion, I think Ron Dahl is going to be the loneliest guy in the room because I don't think anybody's going to go near him. I'll give Mets Daddy a plug on this because when I tweeted about this yesterday, and, and Steve and I agree with you from what I've gathered from this book, uh, you know, the Bob Murphy comments are the ones that disturb me most. Met Daddy included Gary Carter in this for the reason yeah. you just said, that they no longer you know, alive to defend themselves. So he's absolutely right in that respect. So, Rich, take it away. What do you think of Ron Dolling's books and his comments? It's a WTF to me, Mike and Steve. I mean, it's like, right? What are you trying to achieve, Ron? It's like you are recognized as a great broadcaster, which, to be fair, you are, Ron. And, um, you know, you're Yale-educated, you're a World Series winner, um, you know, you have a national gig doing baseball and you're not on SNY, Emmy Award winning, all these things. What in the living hell are you gaining other than some money by outing your teammates, picking on dead people? What are you doing? What is in it for you other than money? And I'll argue that he's probably not on food stamps. I mean, he's probably able to provide for his family. So what in the hell is he actually trying to achieve? Uh, you know, you. I heard Boomer talking about this a couple days ago, and he he said what you would expect him to say. What happens in that locker room is sacred. You know, you don't tell tales out of school. These things happen. They happen in behind closed doors. You know, things like that. You don't. It, it's like you're breaking ranks with people if if you go ahead and. Um, and start writing about this, you know, and, and Steve, you know, you and I have, have known each other for a long time, and, and I think we think a lot alike, and the statement you made was exactly what I thought, which is, if Lenny's such a racist, then how was, how does, how's Strawberry okay with it? How's Gooden okay with it? How's Kevin Mitchell okay with it? He, he had African-American teammates, and he's shouting these things allegedly at Oil Can Boyd. You mean to tell me his own African-American teammates don't hear it, and it's, and it's somehow okay? That can't be. And, and picking on Bob Murphy, I mean, the man is dead 15 years. He died in 04. And you're picking on the guy, outing him for being drunk. I mean, what in the hell are you doing? 
And and again, and if it's if it's so outrageous to you, Ron, why did it take you 33 years to write about it? You retired in 1995. Why didn't you write about it in 1996? If it's if you know if you want to take the moral high ground, but yet you wait 33 years to tell these stories that had to be told, it doesn't. None of it makes sense to me. None of it. And and it's just it's really like. Because Ron's one of our own, you know, and, and he comes into our living rooms every night, you, you kind of want to think that he's above this kind of stuff. But he really, he he just showed he's not. And, and it, it's really, a, I think it's a shitty thing to do. And um, I'm personally not going to read the book. I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of spending my money on the book. I'm I'm that frustrated by it. And uh, And I'm just, I would have thought he was above that kind of stuff. I've read his other two books. But but this one and, and the topics and, and what he did to his teammates, and he tweeted today, I'm not sure if you guys saw it, that um, he can't comment on it because there, there are legal cases going on, so he's not going to have anything to say about the book because there are legal matters pending. We've heard that perhaps he's being sued. He hurt himself. I think he sullied himself. He sullied his teammates and the Mets organization. I'm, I'm, not, I'm very frustrated by this. I'm not at all happy about it. Weird, weird, uh, weird that even his agent didn't, you know, say, hey, you really want to go through with this? It's all too weird. And, and to me, it really is like a Godfather 3 moment. You know, BBW was getting them out from being back page far, fodder, and, and all of a sudden, here they are having to deal with this crap. Anyway, let's get back to baseball. Uh, I'm glad we got that out of the way. Opening day. The Mets are now what, uh, thirty-seven and twenty-one on opening day, seven and four at City Field. Unfortunately, today we don't have the have the happiest recap, but let's delve into it. Let's start with Thor's start today, and for that matter, let's get into Degrom's first two starts of the season, and we'll talk about the starting pitching as a whole before we get into hitting and Alonzo and the Chili Davis effect and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, the guy didn't pitch badly. I'll start it this way. The guy didn't pitch badly. Syndergaard, I still feel uh, he needs he needs more polish. He needs uh, to hone his craft insofar as uh, he, ha- he struggles putting uh, batters away. Uh, and, you know, they foul off and they foul off and they foul off pitches, and before you know it, he blows his load by the sixth inning. So he still has a lot to learn as far as I'm concerned. Overpowering batters isn't the solution. It's not necessarily the way to go. I think uh, he he needs a little bit more craftiness uh, in his repertoire. So, Stephen, opening day, the game itself, the loss, Syndergaard. Well, and you know the thing is, you're you're 100 percent right. He needs to learn how to pitch. You know, and it's not just him. It's a it's a symptom of what is in Major League Baseball today. Is all these pitchers who want strikeouts. Everybody wants to strike out double digits. Nobody pitches to contact. And I'm watching the game today, and it just seemed like every batter was three and two, two and two. He was missing the strike zone. He was he his his control was was way off today. And he only and when you when you look at the box score, he only walked two batters. But he every batter was was in, was deep into the count. 
and he just wants to strike guys out. And again, you're 100 percent right. Where you know they start fouling these pitches off, they're just missing these pitches. They're fouling them back, fouling them back, but the pitch count keeps going up. And then when you get to the fifth, sixth inning, it's like you know the, the guy's on fumes. But he, you know, he, he he's been he's been around long enough that he's got to start. I mean. There's always something with him. It's you know when he did the the weight the weightlifting, and that screwed him up when he tore the lat muscle and he wouldn't go for the X-ray, and now he's you know he, he he's pitching he's a good he's doing very well but he's now he's trying to strike everybody out that's maybe he's overthrowing the ball a lot, and running these counts high and and not you know getting behind batters and everything like that, and then you have the flip side and Jacob Degrom with we're, we're seeing now. You know, someone who's taking who, who's taking the mantle from Siva to Doc Gooden to now De- Jacob Degrom. He's 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 elevated himself into that stratosphere, and and you know, watching him pitch is it's it's just a joy watching him pitch. And I think Wheeler is is somebody too who who has worked very hard and has gotten to where you know he was a top prospect when he was with the Giants. And I remember when they when when they traded uh, Carlos Beltran for him, this is who Sandy Alderson wanted. He wanted Zach Wheeler, and he didn't want to let on that he wanted Zach Wheeler. And he and he ended up get, telling the Giants, "Well, I tell you what, they wanted some other prospect, and the Giants wouldn't give him up." And they and then Alderson had said, "Well, I, you know what? I think I'll take Wheeler." And they said, "Okay, send you Wheeler." And it's turned out to be, you know, it was a great, you know, the, the trade has worked out for the Mets. Mats is another guy that I can't figure out at all. I, I, there's something with him. It's it's not physical. It's, I think it's between his ears. When he he gets when he gets behind or if he doesn't get a call or if a ball gets through that he feels shouldn't have got through, it throws him off. I think that he just overthinks things on the mound, and, and you know hopefully he could get over that. And then there's the uh, the Mets fan punching bag and Jason Vargas, who I kind of feel sorry for. <laughs> Because I think that everybody just go, you know, they just crap all over this guy. And but if you look at the second half that he had last year, he had a very good second half. And he's like the one him. He, I won't put him with the ground, but I'm he. He's the kind of guy that knows how to pitch. And I think, I think Mickey Calloway said it pretty good the other night when he said, "Listen, the guy's been in the major leagues for 14 years. He's made a couple All Star teams. He kind of knows what he's doing." But I know, like Met fans get totally pissed off when this guy pitches and you can see it because he he's only going to get you to the fifth inning and then after that you're going to have to go to your bullpen and i would love to see them i I mean i don't know what the deal is with that dallas keichel i don't know if he's looking for some like 20 million dollars a year for or you know a five-year contract but i i mean if you could find a way to get him here on a one-year or two-year deal i would i think that would be perfect and put Vargas in the bullpen as a long reliever, I think that would be the perfect uh, deal for them. But the, you know, the starting pitching is, is, is for the most part, it's it's very it's solid. It's you know we've we've seen it so far in, in the first week of the season. Here's some, Rich. I'll start you off with this. Uh, I'm going to take you through the first starts through the rotation. Five starts, starting pitchers go two and zero. In 27.1 innings, they only walk seven, they strike out 29, and allow 32 hits uh, for an ERA of 3.56 and a whip of 1.439. I would say that's a a safe 
over and under figure. Uh, that being said, as Stephen mentioned, Vargas last year, from August 2nd through the end of the season, he lowered his ERA from 8.36 down to 5.77. So there's something to be said about that. Matt's between the ears, I agree 100%. You know, he threw 74 pitches in his start, and 54 went for strikes. That's a 71, you know, a 71% rate of uh, red dots on the screen. Uh, but when he falls apart, he falls apart fast. And then working backwards to Grom, he, career, uh, he set his career high in strikeouts yesterday. Uh, in two starts, he's 2-0. and He has 24 strikeouts, and then... You know, we'll start back with Noah Syndergaard opening day. And uh, your impressions of the crowd? Well, the best thing, Steve, you probably thought the same, is that during the pregame introductions, Jacob deGrom got uh, by far the biggest reaction from the crowd. It wasn't even close. I mean, the crowd erupted. Before you go further, I'm sorry to step on you. I I was watching at home. I thought it was hysterical because on the TV it sounded like the massage therapist got a bigger hand than Mickey Calloway. <laughs> probably true, probably true. But, you know, let's do a compare and contrast for a moment, shall we? Noah Syndergaard, Jacob DeGrom, they both have great stuff. Syndergaard's stuff is a little bit better. Uh, I mean, a, a hair better. He has the highest average velocity on his slider. You know, guys throwing 94-mile-an-hour sliders. The guy hits 100 on a regular basis. Now, Syndergaard and DeGrom, the eye test, right? DeGrom dominates lineups. They don't, they don't make solid contact. He is in complete control of the ballgame. Syndergaard seems to battle, at least a couple starts so far this year, seems to be battling himself. When you look at this line after today's game, Two earned runs, one hit, one hit over six innings, two earned runs, six strikeouts. It it seemed, Steve and Mike, like it, it wasn't – that line doesn't match what we saw. It seemed like, he, like Steve said, he was laboring the entire game. He was throwing a lot of pitches. They were, they were fouling balls off, all that stuff. He just does not dominate the way someone with his stuff should. Um, he he can at times, but he doesn't regularly do it. Contrast that to Degrom, who maybe is again a, a half of a tick behind him stuff-wise, but dominates every time. And I'm trying to figure out what it is with Syndergaard. Is it that he's trying to strike the world out? Maybe, maybe that is what it is. Is it that um, you know he has the whole Thor thing, you know, and he wants to be bigger than life and be the guy who strikes everybody out? Yeah, maybe you guys are right. Maybe that is it. So impressions of today beyond that, you know, I, I don't – so the th- whole thing about, you know, the drug testing last night and the fact that the plane landed at 2.45 a.m. and they had the 1 o'clock game and everybody's all up in arms. How can Major League Baseball allow this to happen? How can they play a night game the night before a home opener and all that kind of stuff? Okay. Um, I'm happy that there wasn't a lot of that in the postgame. But, well, you know, we didn't get a lot of sleep other than Syndergaard who was the one who was not impacted because he was home already. So Syndergaard, he complained about Syracuse. He complained about um, last night. You know, we weren't in the best position to win the ball game because of that. So I'm glad the organization, other than Syndergaard, did not make a big deal about that. They were dominated today by a better by Steven Strasburg. And, and Strasburg is a guy they've hit in the past, but 
you had a master on top of his craft today. He was very, very good. They were beaten by a guy who's damn good. Okay. That's going to happen. Um, so that's another observation from today. And just getting back to the pitching staff that you guys are talking about, um, you know, DeGrom is, is on another level right now. We've talked about Syndergaard. Wheeler, I want to see him do it again. You know, he's had half of one season where he's been really good. Let's see. Sunday he was average. Let's see where he is in his next start. Uh, Matt really can't add to what you guys said. You know, he's on and off. Um, he's off again, on again, and when he can look really good and you get excited, then he can blow up all at once. And you do think it's between the ears for sure. He goes to that little thing he does between pitches to keep himself regulated. And here, here to what Steve said about Keuchel. I mean, come on, the, the Mets starting pitching is actually quite thin. You know, the five guys they have, okay, but I don't want Drew Gagne coming up and pitching if somebody should get hurt. That's not he is not the guy you want if you want to contend. So if you do sign Keuchel, Vargas becomes your another lefty out of the bullpen, a swing man. He could be that guy who slots in if somebody has to take a, take a, a, an IL stint. So signing Keuchel, to me, is, is critically important. It's not just about replacing Vargas. It's about depth, because I'm not very impressed with their starting pitching depth beyond these five guys. So that's where I am. And that in turn puts the onus on the bullpen. So let's uh, turn our attention there. Uh, and I think the battle is between Mickey Calloway, analytics, and how he manages the bullpen. And who gets blamed? Is he just following orders? Are some of these maneuvers his own doing? Uh, not including today's game, the bullpen thus far, as of last night, let's just put it that way, had an ERA of 500 even uh, with a whip of 1.611. The main culprits being uh, Quillan, Justin Wilson, Gesellman, Lugo. Uh, The latter two obviously inspire the most concern. So let's uh, start this bullpen uh, conversation, Stephen. Well, this, you know, in, in the off season when they were putting it together, this looked like it was going to be a real strength. I mean, I've never been a big Jerry's Familia fan, but I don't mind them being the guy that sets up Edwin Diaz, with Diaz being the closer. What I don't understand is some so, sometimes the moves that are made by by Mickey Calloway. I mean, we Seth Lugo. The other night threw what forty, forty-five pitches. Has another gets a day off and then comes back again throws another thirty pitches. And then in the post-game press conference, Mickey Calloway lets it be known that uh, he's not well. He's 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 sick. He's sick enough to be taking antibiotics. So I'm like, if the guy's taking antibiotics, he's got to have some kind of a virus. Why is he pitching at all? Why not either put him on the ten-day? Or, like, skip him a couple of days. And then today he did the same thing. It, you know, he brought in he brought in Wilson, who was very good today. He, he, he You know, he pitched very well in relief. Familiar pitched well, too. He got three strikeouts. But then he comes back again with with Lugo. And then, then Tim Peterson. Why not bring Peterson? You know, let's let's hope. Can we give, like, Lugo, if, if the guy... To me, if the guy has some kind of a an infection or virus in his system, 
and you didn't get back into City Field till 2.30 in the morning. And this guy's taking antibiotics. Why is he even pitching today? In a, in a game that it was a pretty much a lackluster event today because it didn't look like you know you don't like to make excuses, but it looks like the, you know the way they got in this morning and everything. They, they just weren't. You, you kind of knew around the fifth, sixth inning that this was not our day. <laughs> this wasn't going to be. This wasn't going to be a Met win. And I just didn't understand why he he didn't just you know if you're going to go with familiar one inning that's fine, but then let Tim Peterson come in and then if you if you have to let him pitch the two innings then let him pitch it and then you're off tomorrow anyway. There's some of the you know sometimes you know I I hate to be like all these other guys on Mets Twitter always they they blame the, the manager for everything that happens that goes wrong. Sometimes you got to hold the players themselves. You got to hold the, you got to hold them responsible too. I mean. They have to come in and do their job, and the problem we've had so far is uh, Gaselman and Lugo have not done the job that we all anticipated they would do, and I guess we'll, I'll give Lugo the pass, being that he's you know not in good health. But uh, Gaselman has better. He's got to like straighten it out too. I mean, sometimes these guys get. I don't know if they get too comfortable if they think they're still on a scholarship. But I think under Brody Van Wagner, I think there are no more scholarships. I think this is going to be where if guys don't produce after the first month, there'll be a lot of changes. Rich. Well, I'm a little disappointed in the way the bullpens look so far. Diaz has not looked dominant. Um, you know, you think about Monday night's game where he loads the bases and then strikes out the side. He looked fine striking out the side, but what the hell are you doing loading the bases? And um, he doesn't look so far like the guy I thought I was getting, right? I thought I was getting the Mariano, you know, he come in and they really can't touch the guy. Maybe somebody gets a, you know, a soft contact single here and there. He might blow one or two saves all year, but basically dominant. He hasn't been that. I mean, they're, they're, the game against Washington, opening day, they hit the crap out of the ball. They happened to hit him at people. Other than the last guy struck out. But the first two outs, one was an absolute bullet to the warning track, and the other was a fly ball to the warning track. And then he strikes the next guy out. And, um, and in the games in Miami, he has not been a lockdown closer. So, yes, it's early, and hopefully they'll get what they want. So there's Diaz. Familia's been very good. Um Lugo, like Steve said, complete pass to Lugo because if he's ill, okay. have no idea why the hell he's pitching, but okay. If he's sick, fine. Uh, Gesellman hasn't, hasn't looked good. And, um, you know, Justin Wilson looks like the guy who, uh, the six-pack Stanhouse, you know, he, um, a, lot of, a lot of traffic on the bases, but he seems to somehow get the job done. And, uh, and who am I missing? You know, Peterson is a guy you – know, He's the guy when they brought him up in that series in Atlanta last year. You know, everybody's like, "Who the hell is this guy?" I and mean, he wasn't even a prospect. Uh, but Peterson could be, you know, he's fine. He could be the twelfth or thirteenth man out of the bullpen, fine. But so far, like like you guys have said, so far the results have not met the expectations. Um, from the closer, the only one who's really hitting expectations is Familia. The rest of these guys better get their stuff together because, um, you know. You, the bullpen has cost this team dearly in the past few years, and it can't keep happening. They have all new faces now. They need better than that. So my bottom line is this. It's a week into the season, a lot of time to fix it, but so far, you know, it's not living up to expectations by a long shot. Definitely some questionable moves. 
uh, as Steven says, now my question, do you think uh, this is more Mickey's maneuverings or do you think he's having to hide behind the analytics? Rich? Well, you know, a, a lot of his moves are curious. Uh, it drives me absolutely insane when you bring your closer in to a four-run lead, a non-save situation like he did Monday night. I don't understand it. I, I understand it if you have the next day off. Okay, fine. Get the guy an inning. Lock the game down. Fine. This was the first game of a three-game series. He brings Diaz in. Diaz throws a crap ton of pitches to, and barely escapes a 7-3 lead. You know, that's the game where he loaded the bases and struck the side out. So now he's burned for the next night. They had to go to Wilson. They got very lucky to win that game. We all know that. And then then you have to go to Diaz on Wednesday night, where he's probably still feeling the effects of all the pitches he threw Monday night. He didn't look good Wednesday night either. So you wonder about that. You wonder about things like using Familia and Diaz in the same game, where it's not a safe situation, which he's also done. You You wonder about why is Lugo... A, pitching when he's sick, and B, pitching every day when he's sick. So some of the moves have been curious. You know, and I'll leave it at this and then go to Steve, but um, Mickey is a big believer in if I get the guy up and and he's been up once and threw a lot of pitches or twice, then he's already basically gone for the next night. So I'd rather put him in the game and get what I can out of him. So I understand that point okay, but to me, it's like that's what he used in the 7-3 game. He said, you know, I had him up throwing, and when it wasn't 7-3, but we blew it open, but I didn't want to, I was going to lose him anyway, so I threw him out there. I, I kind of understand that, but um, I don't know. I worry about burning guys out. Some of the moves have been ponderous, as you say, Mike. So, um, But then again, you, you know, there's stuff we don't know. You don't know about the private conversations that they're having. Hey, Skip, I don't think I can do it tonight, or... You know, hey, Skip, I, I, you know, put me in. I'm okay. I, I know I pitched your nights in a row. I'm okay. You don't know about these private conversations that might lead to some of these decisions, but they certainly look curious. Our other partner in Mexican crime, Sam Maxwell, is on the line. But first, I'm going to throw it back to Stephen. Hello, 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 Sam, <laughs> hello, Sam. But uh, Stephen, well. uh, hold on, first, Stephen. Uh, I, I want you to start transitioning over to the offense, but still take the bullpen into consideration when I asked Rich. Uh, do you think he's having to hide be- behind analytics uh, or some of these judgments, judgment calls, you know, his doing? And is this ultimately going to be his downfall? Because uh, on previous podcasts, Sam, Rich, and I, we sort of feel that Calvin isn't necessarily Brody's guy. And, you know, he'll give him a fair shake, but if he can replace him, he'll do it in a heartbeat. So take it away. Well, that is that is true. Brody did not hire Mickey Calloway. And I know that the Mets now have turned into a one of the true analytic front offices. But I, I just I, – I know some of these guys just – you know, you can't – first of all, you can't use four or five relievers every game. Because they'll be burned out by by Memorial Day, and then we'll, we'll really be, as Terry Collins likes to say, we really be in the jackpot if that happens. So they have to like try to get these starters to go at least six, seven innings to give us some length, you know. And the thing is too, I, when I saw um, when he brought Diaz in on Monday, 
it made me think of when Billy Wagner was on the team, and Willie Randolph would use him sometimes in non-safe situations, and it would drive Billy Wagner up a wall. Now, Billy Wagner was a very vocal guy who, you know, didn't hold back, and he said, he goes, there's a big difference from you're a closer coming in in that situation where you know you have to lock down these three outs to where you come into a game and it's not a safe situation and it's like a four-run lead. And I remember a game I was at, it was one of the Subway Series games where Willie Randolph did bring in uh, Billy Wagner and the Mets were up by four runs and Wagner was like, he, he just exploded on the mound. He couldn't do anything because he was not in the mindset. He didn't think he was getting in the game because it's a four-run lead. You don't need me today. And Randolph brought him in anyway. And I kind of, I think, you know, I wonder if that's the same situation with Diaz, because I don't think he ever, with Seattle, I don't think he ever pitched in a non-safe situation, or if he did maybe like a few times. And I don't think he's ever pitched like a two-inning save. So I think that's something else we'd have to look at later on in the season. But uh, I don't know how how much input the front office has on the moves that Callaway makes because I, I, I don't, you know, and especially with the pitching, when you look at Dave Island, Dave, Dave Island doesn't seem to strike me as the guy who's going to listen to some guy coming down with spreadsheets, telling them what to do. So I don't know if he has more influence on these moves with Mickey. Cause it seems that him and Mickey are like kind of tight. Like, you know, he brought, he brought Island in and everybody else that's on that staff has been brought in by the front office. And sometimes that's another problem, too. I mean, I'm glad they brought Jim Ringelman in because you need to have a, a, an experienced bench coach. But I wonder if, like, Mickey thinks, you know, I'm like I'm like one five-game losing streak away from this guy taking my spot here. But sometimes his use of this and, – and I would – I thought – with him being the manager, being a pitching coach, being pitching coach with the Indians for so many years, that this would be his forte, would be running the pitching staff and running the bullpen. And some of the moves, like you say, he makes moves that everybody just like looks at each other and just tries to figure out what he's, what is he trying to do here? And But I don't want to kill him like for everything. Because like I say, you know, players got to step up. If I put you in a situation and I feel that you're the guy that can handle this job for me and do what I need needs to be done, and you know, you and you have to do it. You have to step up. You have to show. I'm showing faith in faith in you. You have to show faith. You know, show the faith back to me, showing that you're the guy that I can count on. Sam, I am. We talked opening day, Sam. We talked for Hodges Jr. and Joan Hodges. We've talked Ron Darling. You heard uh, the bullpen discussion of Mickey Callaway. We've spoken about the starting rotation. We haven't spoken about the offense. We'll do that together. But if there's anything about the above that you want to jump in and, you know, stick your two cents in on, by all means, the stage is yours. And welcome. What's up? Hey guys, what's going on? Um, I am on location at 34th and 3rd. Uh, I am. I have exited the uh, Flying Cock, and that is the uh, the place that I I have been drinking all night at. And so I will preface that and give a disclaimer with the fact that I've been drinking. Uh, but you know, I, I won't be able to stay too long. But we're talking Mickey Callaway right now, and. Uh, Ponderous is the word of the night. Uh, uh, Mike, that probably is your word 
I always attribute the word ponderous. Anytime I hear anybody else say ponderous, I think Mike LeColon, because you well, said I, it so often. You, you said it so often. You, you stole it from who? From, well, let's just say it's Casey Keenum, right? That's his name, right? Yeah, well, right. Right, there you go. I mean, but, like, there's a reason why you use it as often as you do. And and I have to say that, that sometimes, uh, like today, you know, I understand that many pitchers, uh, many, many managers pull back after they've announced Dominic Smith, players like Dominic Smith, um, they've put out there, and then they're like, all right, well, you know, they've been countered. Um, but I think it's a dumb move to all of a sudden completely uh, uh, be like, well, okay, well, I'm going to go with somebody else, J.D. Davis. Um, when Dominic Smith is the best bat off your bench right now, he is in the zone. He is absolutely in the zone, and you pull him back just because there's a righty going up. Let this guy figure out major league pitching. Let him figure out major league pitching because all of a sudden you have a strikeout on your hands and the rally is completely killed. You heard the stands when Dominic Smith came out. They were excited, which can go along with him at, at bat. And, and it's just, it's just it's little moves like that that just make me so frustrated um, with, with everything uh, about the way Mickey Calloway sometimes goes about the, the pitching, the, the, the whole staff in general, whether it's the pitching staff or the offense, um, I, I'm, I'm going to Gil Hodges really quick. I'm so happy that Gil Hodges Jr., who I've been lucky enough to, to interact with over the course of uh, the last few years, I'm so happy that he was able to, to get out there with uh, his entire family, whoever is, is, is there still. And I really hope to God that... Uh, Joan Hodges is still there when they vote him into the Hall of Fame, which I, 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 I really have a good feeling that they're going to finally figure it out about Gil Hodges coming up in, in, in De- uh, January 2020, really, but the vote will happen in, in December 2019. Um, you know, you've you got to wonder about Mickey Calloway. Obviously, he's still in his sophomore year. He still has a lot to learn. But there's there's certain moves where you say to yourself, is this really going to work out for the long term? And I I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt because I am all about preaching sustainability and 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 consistency and and Mickey Callaway growing with the Mets. With you know we we're we're so impatient in this town. We're so impatient with the front office that. I'm really hoping that he can grow into this job properly. But there's some times that you just think to yourself, we're not going to, he's not going to do that. There's, you know, but we're still five and two. How much can you, can you really hate on it uh, right now about it? So, you know, you're just, you're just like, let's, let's take it easy. Let's just remember it, it's the same thing. Like you can't get as excited about it as you can't get as, as down on it as, as you, as it's so easy to do. And that's why one of the things that I just hate is when people are tweeting the standings, showing the Mets in first place. It's like, come on, we've learned this. People were tweeting 
in 2017 when the Mets were 7-3 and three showing the standings and they were in first place. Are you kidding me right now? Uh, anyway, that, that's, that's basically the rant that I can go on right now. I have to get back to the bar because I know that there's people waiting for me. Uh, it sounds like you guys, I mean, w- with everything I've heard, you guys have this handled pretty soundly. Uh, so let me, let me, um, I'm going to head to the flying cock. Like I said, it's, it's funny to say, but it's obviously talking about a rooster. That's the, that's the picture in front of, uh, the, the bar. And, uh, it's, it's quite the good bar. They got some great food. They got some great drinks and, um, it's a good place to go when you're in your misery, uh, over the Mets losing the home opening day. But, um, I, 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 I'm, you know, my reputation's preceding me here. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, just don't go suffering in silence and get home safely, you hear? Thank you. I will. I appreciate it, guys. Yo, uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us tonight, and um, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Max. Uh, Sam, nice to hear from you. <laughs> right, right back <laughs> at you. I'll talk to you. We'll talk to you guys soon. <laughs> All right, guys, let's talk uh, some hitting uh, before we wrap this up. Like I said, I crunched some numbers, but that was before today's game. Entering today's game, the Mets were averaging six-point runs and 10.1 hits per game. Uh, Are we witnessing the Chili Davis school of hitting in action? They're hitting very well with runners in scoring positions. uh, In scoring position, I think they've only hit maybe, what, four home runs all season so far? We're talking about seven games. So, you know, offense, uh, I like the way, the way they're going about it. So take it away, Steven. Well, I Paul, like, for, that matter, bring, for that matter, bring Pete Alonso into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I do like the, the new approach from the uh, swing, high, swing high, swing for the, you know, for the fences. And you know what they they call now the three true outcomes: the walk, strikeout, and home run, which to me is what's ruining baseball. That's that's the thing that's that's making these games insufferable, making them three over three hour games. Is that everybody either strikes out, they walk, or they hit a home run. Nobody puts the ball in play anymore. You God forbid you ever see a guy go from first to third on a double, or even if somebody calls you know any a manager call for a hit and run anymore. And it seems that 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 uh, Davis's philosophy on hitting is hit to all fields, and you see, you know, that's a, to me is what sh- teams should be embracing, especially with all teams, you know, with with the shifts on defense. I mean, if you see, if you're a left-handed hitter and they they have all, all the infielders towards the right side of the field, you have that whole left side open. You have to learn how to hit the ball the other way and. Put, even if you have to bunt the ball down the third baseline when nobody's covering it, but I think you're seeing that with a lot of these Met players, especially Alonzo. I was, I was kind of surprised, you know, how I, I thought that he was one of these three outcome guys, but it looks like that he's, he's honed his skills much more to where that he's more of a selective, a selective hitter. He might even be a better selective hitter than Conforto. Conforto gets sometimes he gets into these. Uh, slumps where he gets fooled a lot on pitches, especially pitches that are low and outside. And I, and like with Nimmo, 
Keith Hernandez had made a good point when he was showing replays that he's just missing the ball. He's just coming under the ball. And I saw it a few times today where he was fouling balls back, which means he's right on the pitch, but he's just like a fraction off on them. And if he, if he can get that down, he'll start hitting the line drives again and hitting balls in the gap and getting doubles. So, uh, you know, and McNeil, McNeil, what I like about him is he does something that players don't do anymore. He chokes up on the bat a little bit. He gets a little bit of back control. And he seems to have a very good idea of what he's doing in that in the batter's box. The, you know, the out, the outfield, Juan Lagares, I mean, I, I don't know if you'll ever get, if you'll ever hit. But I wasn't too crazy about them pinch hitting for him today. And then the way they did it, I don't think that was uh, making Smith come out. And Sam is 100% right. I mean, when, when, when Dom Smith came out, Everybody was going crazy because they're like, oh, all right, now we got a shot here with Dom Smith. And then when they brought him back in after the pitching change and they brought in J.D. Davis, everybody was like, what are you doing? You, why'd, you have to, why'd you burn this guy? And then Callaway was trying to explain it after the game. And the more he, the more he explained it, it seemed to me the bigger hole he was digging for himself on this, trying to rectify what he did. But, it, it, you know, they, they have guys that – I mean – we, we were seeing it with Smith, and I, I give Dom Smith so much credit because th- I thought that this guy, he was, you know, he was at that fork in the road in a career where he could have just been like Lasting's Millage, and we would have seen him go to Japan and then to the, to the Atlantic League. But he, you know, he he went on the other path where he got himself in tremendous physical shape. He dedicated himself to uh, being the better ball player, and he forced their hand to bring him up north with them to be uh, like, I don't know if it's a platoon, but, uh, you know, a left-handed bat off the bench, but he's made the major league team. And I I don't think he's going to be seeing Syracuse again because uh, he's, he's, he's just too good. The guy's a really good, he's a good hitter and he's an excellent first baseman. And, and the, the bench is deep. It'll be even deeper. You know, we have to remember too, Jed Lowry will, I hope we'll come back sooner or later. He was at opening day today. He was introduced. And it seems that Todd Frazier had played in the game in St. Lucie today. And we'll be get, hopefully we get Cespedes back after the All-Star break. And then we can't forget even Travis Dono, who also played in the rehab game today. So you're going to be replacing guys here that really aren't hitting or anything with guys who can, who are major league players. So I think there's some optimism right there that this offense, as long as it continues to where they, you know, put put the ball in play, hit the ball in the gaps, hit, you know, hit go the other way with the ball. If they keep doing that and stay stick with that philosophy, then they'll score a lot of runs and we'll be we'll be a pretty good team. Richard, we're playing who's hot and who's not right now. Wilson Ramos is wielding a hot bat. So is Jeff McNeil. So is. Uh... Michael Conforto and uh, Pete Alonso, obviously, we'll get into him in detail. Uh, who's not? Uh, Robinson Cano, J.D. Davis, and uh, Ahmed Rosario is somewhere in the middle. You know, so uh, Pete Alonso, I, I, I like the fact that they're hitting him second in the lineup, crosses him or provides him with great protection, having Cano and, and, and Ramos and Conforto behind him. He's going to get a great selection of pitches to hit. So take it away, Rich. Well, one thing I noticed today, too, was did you notice that Chili Davis got a bit of a um, more of a 
reception than you would think a hitting coach would? Did they, am I crazy, or did you guys pick no. up on that? Yeah, it's true. No. He did. He, yeah. I was watching yeah, on did. TV, and that's exactly yeah. how it sounded. So, and I think that the fans are on it. I mean, I think the fans realize that, you know, the the way the team had had approached had approached offense, relying on the home run ball, it it just it produces long droughts, it produces all or nothing, and I think especially as National League fans, we like the kind of hitting like the, the offensive style of Chili Davis, which is use the whole field, take what they give you. Um and I don't know if you guys heard this, but I was in the car at the B, at the beginning of the game yesterday, and I caught the end of the pregame show, and Dom Smith was being interviewed. And he was very poignant in his comments. He said, you know, when I first came up in 17 and again in 18, the philosophy here was hit the ball over the ball, hit the ball over the wall, hit a home run. That was our offense, was entirely geared on the home run. He said, but Chile has come in, and he's told us, you know, if they're overshifting on you, go the other way. Look around, see what they're giving you. If you have to bunt, do things to break the shift. All these things Dom Smith was saying about the new philosophy, it's exactly that. It's my belief in baseball anyway that that's the more effective way to go in the first place. But secondly, especially, again, with the way that we've seen that all-or-nothing offense can be so frustrating to watch, look at what Dom Smith himself is doing. He's beating the shift more than anybody. Michael Conforto laid down a bunt the other day. Cano tried to lay down a bunt. I know, so getting back to your point about, you know, who's hot and who's not, well, you know, J.D. Davis was a risk. The Mets traded a couple of decent prospects for him. And right now, you know, defensively he looks pretty bad, and offensively he's hitting, a, you know, a buck 90 or whatever it is. So he doesn't look so great at the moment. Uh, so he'd definitely be in the cold category. Um Looking at Wilson Ramos, he is a much better hitter than I thought he was. I thought he was an all-or-nothing slugger, but this guy goes the other way. He is a good, good hitter. Um, and then Cano, I'm, look, I love having Robbie Cano on this team, but in this particular moment, our worst fears about Robbie Cano are, are popping up like dandelions. He's 36. He doesn't look good right now. He had a good first game, of course. He had the home run, drove in both runs, great defensive play. But since then, he really hasn't done much offensively. And I don't know about you guys, but it starts to creep in the back of my mind, ooh, did we get Robbie Cano at the end? Is he another Robbie Alomar? Um, So it's only a weekend. Hopefully that will straighten itself out. But I have those little, little negative thoughts about Cano as much as I don't want to have them. So, And I worry about Nimmo, too. Because Nimmo's, um, I love Nimmo. His on-base percentage of over 400 last year, I think it was 404. You wonder if that's sustainable, and if they're going to catch on to him, you know, and just and just challenge the living crap out of him and not let him walk. The guy, I think, he had 270, but a 400 on-base percentage. Obviously, he walked a lot and he got hit by some pitches. So, has the league adjusted to him? Have they realized that you could beat him in the strike zone? and not give him a chance to walk. So I, I worry about Nimmo as much as I like the guy. A little worried there. Um, but, yeah, that, that's basically my assessment of the offense at this point. Um, I'd like to see Broxton get a little more. He brings great speed. Um, he certainly has looked good in the limited at-bats he's had. Remember, this guy hit over 300 two years ago. So I'd like to see Broxton worked in a little more, and I think you'll see that if Nimmo continues to struggle. But overall, I like the approach. You know, of Chili Davis, I have 
some concerns about the players I mentioned. But, um, yeah, and McNeil, too. I mean, McNeil hasn't looked like the guy we saw late last year. But I, I think he's he's a natural hitter. I think he'll come around. But that's where I am on the offense. Uh, here it is, April 4th, in the Mets start for first place. Uh, Steven, being that we have you, I want to revisit Tom Seaver, 41 Seaver Way, the statue, and uh, anything you'd like to, uh, you know, delve into with regards to Tom Seaver. Well, I mean, that's I've been watching Tom Seaver from 1967, from his rookie year, and the way he, you know, came up and he changed with him with Gil Hodges, how they changed everything that had to do with the Mets. Uh, I'll tell you a story here that I I don't think I've told to anybody, but when they used to have the uh, bloggers night at City Field. And I would get invited there. And one one night when we got invited, one of the, the people we got to sit and talk to was Jeff Wilpon. And it, it took everything I had not to just, like, jump over the table and choke him. Because the, the whole subject of the statue of Tom Seaver came up. And he just was giving me excuse after excuse why they weren't building this statue for for Siva. He was like adamant about it. And I was I think I was almost at the point where they were ready to have security just come and just take me out and tell me don't ever come here again. But I mean now they've they've decided okay, we're going to name the we're going to name the address of City Field to 41 Siva Way. We are now going to build the statue to him, which all this should have been done. I mean, this this there should, you know, if you go to to San Francisco, if you go at what's called was it Oracle Park now, you go over there. There there are plaques and statues for everyone from not just the San Francisco Giants, but guys, but New York Giants from John McGraw to Mel Ott, guys like that. There's statues of them. There's plaques of them. There's, they they embrace the history of the team. I, Yankee Stadium. I mean, if if you just played the two seasons there, you get a plaque out there. I mean, that's <laughs> that, you know that goes from one end to the other. But with the Mets, they've never really embraced. Well, this ownership has not embraced the history of this organization. And you know, you brought up with, you talk about Robinson Cano. I have a problem with him wearing that twenty four. And because Willie Mays wore that 24, and I and young younger Met fans think I, I'm out of my mind because I don't really don't think they understand how good Willie like Willie Mays is like one of the greatest baseball players that ever played, and he his career started in New York, and he only left New York because the Giants left, and I think that that 24 should have been retired. Now another story that I have heard about was when Joan Payson bought the Mets in 62, the first thing she did was she called Horace Stoneham and said, I want to buy the contract of Willie Mays. And she said, tell me how much you want and that's the price. And Stoneham was like, well, I can't do it. I mean, I just moved out here. He's like, you know, he's Willie Mays. He's the greatest player we have. If I get, if I send him back to New York, I mean, what's going to happen here? She goes, I'm telling you, I will pay whatever you ask for the contract of Willie Mays. I want to bring him here. I want him to come back to New York, and I want him to play for the Mets. And Horace Stoneham was in a tough spot because he wasn't making the money that uh, that 
uh, Walter O'Malley was making. He didn't have the deal that Walter O'Malley had with Chavez Ravine in Los Angeles. And, you know, the, I, I just wish, I, I think it's starting to turn, like Rich said, that they're starting to embrace the history. I think one of the good things that's happened this year is um, is, is is that they're bringing more of the alumni around. They're starting to, you know, embrace that alumni. Jay, they have Jay Horowitz now is in charge of that. And I think we're going to see, like, I know there was something in the game notes that on the weekend, I think Rick Reed is going to be at the ballpark. And, jeez, I forget who else. But they're going to, they did this a couple of years ago, too, where they would bring back some of these older players and have them be in the in the Jackie Robinson Rotunda and shake hands and sign autographs for people when they come in. But they, they have to, you know, because some of the, the, there's some younger Met fans who I guess if they're, Fathers, mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers were not baseball fans or Mets fans. They don't have a clue of the history of, of this organization. They don't know the players who have played here. I, I, I was trying to explain to my son about the 1969 season. And it, it, it's just, it's to try to explain it, you're talking about an era where there were no cell phones, there was no StubHub, you couldn't get an app to buy tickets where if you wanted to go to the game, you either went to the ticket booth at Grand Central Station or you went to Shea Stadium to buy the tickets. And as that season went on and everybody started to see what there was something going on here that we we couldn't believe was happening, there would be lines and lines and lines of people at the box office buying day-of-the-game ticket, especially when Tom Seaver was pitching. And I always remember, like, Lindsey Nelson and, you know, Murphy and Kine are doing the games. And Lindsey Nelson, they would show as he was, you know, getting ready to, you know, when the games were going to start. And they would show all the people outside Shea Stadium. And they're all online waiting to get tickets. And then Lindsey Nelson would say, there, there are no more tickets for sale. The, the, the game is completely sold out. They can't fit another person in Shea. And Shea Stadium held, like, close to 60,000 people. They said they're turning people away. They can't get in. They can't get in the ballpark. And, I mean, like today, it's like everything has got to, you know, the, you got the app and you get it on your app or you want to, you know, get stuff or all that. And we didn't have internet. You know, this was all like, you know, people talking, Met fans talking, talking to each other. You know, the, you had you know, you had the newspapers. You had more newspapers then than you have now. You really didn't have any sports talk radio or anything like that. It was just more of an organic thing back then than it is now. And I think that uh, that maybe they're trying to bring that back and try to educate some of the fans who weren't a part of that and try to show them what was what it was like, what what this organization has done. I mean, uh, you know, two World Series victories. You know, that, that's that, you know that, that's what we have. We don't, you know, we're not we're not the Bronx. Okay, we're a whole different animal. But we're a national. We're the we're the flagship team of the National League. And I think I remember back when. I was a kid when Old Timers Day. It wasn't just you know there was Dodger old Brooklyn Dodger guys that came back. Uh, the Yankees, they, they you know I remember Whitey Ford and DiMaggio would come, Mickey Mantle, and I think they need to do something like that again to embrace the history of baseball in New York, not just the Met. Maybe you know bring Yankee guys, bring some Giants who, who guys who who was. I mean, I would love to see them bring like Willie Mays back and have a night for him again and retire that twenty. I don't know. If, Cano would give up that 24. But, you know, stuff like that. I wish they would just embrace that history. And 
not to the, where how the Yankees shove it down your throat, but just to have it there to show people and let and educate people on this organization and what it's what it's been like for the past like you know sixty years they've been around. I wouldn't give Cano a choice. I would just take the number away from him. You're right and everything you said, <laughs> Rich. Anything you want to add to that? <laughs> <laughs> well. You know, some of these things, we're all basically in the same age category, you know, and some of these things from our childhood were really good things. You know, like old-timers day, nobody, the Yankees still do it, but you don't hear about that in too many organizations. But what a great way, like Steve was saying, what a great way to bring the history of the Mets predominantly, but baseball New York, to the younger generation. That's how I learned about it. I mean, I, you know, my father passed away when I was a little kid, so I, I'm self-taught in baseball, and I would learn about who Willie Mays was, who Duke Snyder was. You know, we've all seen that iconic picture of Willie Mays, Duke Snyder, and Mickey Mantle walking through the center field fence at Chase Stadium in, in an old-timers day, and, and that's how I learned, by bringing these guys back, and you hear the stories, and you hear what they did and all that stuff, so maybe bringing back something like old-timers day would be a great way to help the younger generation embrace the history of this organization and the history of baseball in New York. You know, it, it, it doesn't happen organically now. You know, it, they, have to for, they have to force it a little bit. And maybe by doing everything we've talked about, some statues, you know, some nights honoring people, and maybe bringing old-timers day back, things like that would be a way to do that. So, you know, like we've talked about, the Wilpons, in my opinion, are, are getting their big toe wet in the pool of, of, hist- of the Mets' history. That's great, but they could do a lot more, and these might be some things to do. Well, uh, I can't help. I can't help but add. Uh, you know what? I better not. I'll go on all night. <laughs> uh, well, let's move on to the final word because I, I sense the I sense the rage boiling in me, and I, I don't want to go there. Uh, <laughs> the Mets have done the Will Ponds have just done an, an atro- atrocious job of, you know, uh, commemorating Mets history. Uh, Shea Stadium's replacement should have been a shrine to Mets baseball, and in that respect, they failed miserably. Uh, there's a lot of artifacts that should be in the Mets Hall of Fame, which will never be, like the old bullpen cart, the old Tommy A.G. logo in the upper deck. I could go on. Uh, what they do, they auctioned all those items off. Those items, those artifacts should all be in the Hall of Fame. So that's why I don't really want to go there. Oh, I'd love to, though. Uh, that said, <laughs> Rich, <laughs> that said, Rich uh, any final thoughts and anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to bring up? You know, I'm encouraged by the getting back to present day. I'm, I'm encouraged by the five and two start. Um, it's not the eleven and one and twelve and two of last year, but you don't it doesn't have to be. I think they've come out of the shoot well, and they're going to have to because they have 19 of their first 24 on the road. You know, after a five game homestand here, they go right back on the road, and and you don't want to get buried in April, like you've always said, Mike. You can't win a pennant in April, but you certainly can lose one. So. These games are very important, you know, and the good news is when they get through April, they're going to be owed a lot of home games, and they'll have them. Although, ironically, this team doesn't play really well at home, right? At least they haven't in the past. But anyway, um, so I'm encouraged. You know, I would have accepted 4-2 and two coming into the season. I said, okay, if they can do 4-2 and two on the road trip, I'd have been fine with that. They gave me 5-1. and one. That's great. Keep the pedal to the metal, guys. You know, don't let don't let yourself get – too far behind, God forbid, you know, with these with this tough road schedule in April. 
and uh, and let's keep going forward. And I people laugh at me, but I was telling people I went with eight people today. I was telling them in the car on the way down that I do think this could be a World Series team. You know, maybe they add a piece or two, but I really have confidence in this team. I just want to keep the pedal to the metal, like I said, and you know, don't have any long losing streaks. Don't let April gobble you up, and and keep going forward. Very good. Mr. Stephen King, thank you so very kindly for taking time out of your schedule, joining us on the Metsian Podcast. It's been great talking to you again. Uh, invitation's always there for you. You're welcome anytime. So any final thoughts or anything that we didn't touch upon that you'd like to bring up? Well, I just want – it's been a pleasure being on with you guys today. You know, it's uh... – it's good to talk Mets baseball with guys who know Mets baseball. It's <laughs> you know that, that know the game, know you know know what's going on and everything. And I, I, that's that's great. I, I I'm with Rich. I think this team can really do a lot of a good. What I like about this team, this team likes each other. These are guys who have come up together. You when you watch Pete Alonso and and uh, and and Dom Smith interact after Alonso's home run. And these are two guys who are really competing for a job, but they they they're you know going with each other. They 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 make each other better, and I think that that's a great thing. You could see how there's, there's there is camaraderie. I mean, even Syndergaard coming out and politicking for Degrom to get the contract extension. I was I was okay with that. It just seems that these guys are very close. It's kind of a close knit team. And I, I tried to tell this, you know, I argued with this with a lot of people over the winter. You know, you can sign free agents like Bryce Harper and Manny Pachado, but that really doesn't mean you're going to have a cohesive team. What I see with the Mets is they're a real team. These, are, every, there's, You know, once everybody learns their role on the team, then I think we're going to see some real positive results. Well said, sir. Uh, I'll just wrap this up instead of a final word. I just want to say... Through the years of Las Vegas being the Mets affiliate, uh, I, I came to love Russ Langer, who called their games. And being that their games start at 10.30, usually after Met games, uh, and Syracuse games for that matter now, uh, I'm going to continue listening to him only because I love listening to him so much. Uh, that's somewhat off the grid. Mets have no affiliation with Las, Las Vegas anymore, but I'm a, I'm a Russ Langer fan. I just figured I'd throw that out there, and I'm going to continue to listen to their games for a while uh, until something stops me. So with that said, on behalf of Rich and Sam and the Metsian Podcast, Mr. Stephen King, everybody, thank you so very kindly one more time. And the way we always end our podcasts, I'll just let out a nice hearty let's go Mets on behalf of Mets fans everywhere. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody. Steve, great talking to you. Yeah, same here, Rich. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for everything. Good night, sir. Thank you. Bye now.